in this week's episode of ND Vision. But what brought you, so you're from Lebanon, what brought you to the States? You know what? Uh, uh, I look at that kid many, many years ago, and I have, don't, I have no idea. You know, really? I think life is a, uh, is a very weird journey. It, it feels like a different life. Mm-hmm. I always tell my patients, because it's a, uh, it's just, and especially now with social media, it's a society of perfection. Yeah. Everybody wants to look the most beautiful, the smartest, the richest, have the best phone. And when I, meant, when I went to medical school, my rank was 47 among 60. Okay. When I graduated, my rank was 47 among 60. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this episode of ND Vision. I'm Nick Davis, and joining me today is um, one of the people that I highly look up to, um, and I managed to get him on the podcast with his massively busy schedule, and it's Dr. Kassas. Dr. Sass, hello. Hello. Dr. Sass, what is your full name? Um... So where I come from, you have to be named after your grandpa. Okay. And my grandpa's name is Mohammed. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents didn't like names that tells in that part of the world what religion you are. Sure. So they wanted a neutral name, which is Zahi. Mm. And they so nobody. So my first name is Mohammed Zahi. Okay. But I was never ever called Mohammed, and that's why everybody calls me Zahi. Which in that part of the world, our names have meanings. Okay. So Zahi means the all colorful. Ah, um, it matches your personality for as sure. A, uh, <laughs> as opposed to my twin brother. You, you know, I have a twin. I did not know you had a twin. They're identical. Really? Yeah. And his name is Shadi. And Shadi means the beautiful voice. Okay. Uh, yeah. So there's Zahi and Shadi. And both of us are Muhammad Zahi and Muhammad Shadi. So my grandpa wouldn't be sad. But we were called Zahi and Shadi. Okay. We look alike. We are exactly the same. We went to the same classroom. We sat next to each other's. And we both, our names are Mohammed. Start with Mohammed. <laughs> I never knew when they called Mohammed Kassas, if they are calling me or calling my brother. Yeah. And I never knew if my grades or my report card are my grades or his grades, <laughs> which worked very well to his favor. Because you got the better grades. Yeah, I hope he doesn't be, he was not listening to the podcast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's, uh, but then it, it's, it was worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, at home we were called Zahi and Shadi, and, and even here it's a bit confusing because uh, my license is, and whatever you find me, it's Mohammed Zahi. And so if, if you call me Mohammed, I wouldn't know you're calling, you're talking about me. So it's Zahi Kassas. Zahi Kassas. Sorry about this whole de- lengthy answer. No, 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 no. What, what part of the world are you from? Lebanon. Lebanon? Lebanon. Okay. Uh, we are born in Beirut. Beirut yeah. is uh, the capital. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a beautiful city. Um, it's uh, at the shoreline of the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah. Um, uh, over the years, I think it, it took a, um, when you say the word Beirut, it mm-hmm. doesn't have a, um, people cringe because it was a big war and, but it's the best place in the world for me. It's the most beautiful place in the world for me and, um, and I miss it. 
I remember uh, an episode of No Reservations with Anthony Bourdain. I'm pretty sure it was either Lebanon or Laos that he was in, where the war broke out while he was there. Yes, it was Beirut. Was yeah. it Beirut? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know exactly what I'm talking about then? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was in the 2006 maybe, yeah. or 16, one of these two. 2006. Um, I, I think it was. It would have been 16. 16. Okay. I think his show started in 2007 yeah. or something like that. I see. But I, I love Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> that was one of the celebrity deaths that like affected me. Not very yeah, many celebrity it, deaths affected. If you me. like food and cuisines, yep. you, you want to include the Lebanese cuisine certainly. And, yeah. Uh, Do you cook? A little bit. Do you make any signature? Uh, what's what's? No, no. I, I not, nothing signature. I no? make my own salads and. Um, uh, uh, mostly breakfast, the Lebanese breakfast. Yeah. Um, but the uh, I like helping Rihanna with the cooking. Rihanna likes to experiment, and yeah. But um, it, the ingredients are not the same. So even when you buy, let's say, parsley here, it's mm-hmm. not the same parsley that you buy if you were in Italy or if you were in Lebanon. Right. The ingredients make a big difference in the taste. That's why Lebanese food in the U.S. never tastes like the Lebanese food in Lebanon. And I think you will hear Italians telling you the same thing yeah. or um, Greeks telling you the same thing. Greek and Italians fight over their olive oils all the time. Yes. Some say Greek olive oil is the best. Some say Italians olive oil is the best. I can't tell the difference, <laughs> quite honestly. Well, it depends on how much they cheat in it. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> how much vegetable oil is in it. And Lebanon, being in the Mediterranean, we do have lots of olive trees and... Mm. Uh, the um, part of northern Lebanon is called Kura. Okay. Uh, they make great um, olive tr- uh, uh, olive oil. Yeah. But then there's the olive oil for personal consumption, and then there's the olive oil that they sell. Okay. And it's different. The real olive oil looks like butter. Really? It's uh, it's very dark green, mm-hmm. and um, you you you, it's almost like you cannot. Drip it from a bottle. You have to swipe it. Really? That's the real olive oil. It's super thick. Yeah, but how much you water it down with um, vegetable oil and stuff like that. Will, uh, yeah. So, so is like real olive oil kind of like a consistency of coconut oil when it's firm, when it's hard? Before yeah, it's, it's om- not, that, not that thick, but okay. yeah, yeah, very similar. Hmm. Yeah. What dish do you miss the most? Um... The uh, the Lebanese cuisine that you find here, you find the salads like the tabbouleh, the fatouche, mm-hmm. but the actual cuisine is mostly uh, like um, uh, rice. There's okay. rice and more like pilafs and yeah. and vegetables, cooked vegetables with it. And um, uh, it's not a spicy cuisine. Nope. So most people when they uh, expect a um, kind of Middle Eastern cuisine, they expect a spicy cuisine, but Lebanon doesn't have much of a spicy mm-hmm. um, uh, cuisine. It's, it's close, very close to the Italians and Greeks. We keep fighting, like t- Turks, Lebanese, Greeks, Italian. We claim our right for certain dishes. Yeah. And, <laughs> and nobody can tell really where it started first. And, mm-hmm. um, it's very similar. We, uh, I'm, I'm half Puerto Rican, and a lot of people just think that Puerto Rico is Mexico. So they think it's spicy food as well. And Puerto Rican food is more savory and sweet. Like they have monfango, which is this plantain smashed with pork. Um, pork is their biggest, pernil is their biggest, um, their biggest like cuisine there is pork and then monfango. And then of course, you know, you have your, your light seafoods. Um, there's not actually a lot of seafood in Puerto Rico, which you would think it's an yeah. island that it would be, but no, it's like a dead zone. 
Um, but what brought you? So you're, you're from Lebanon. What brought you to the States? You know what? Uh, uh, I look at that kid many, many years ago, and I have don't I have no idea. You know, really? I think life is a uh, is a very weird journey. It it feels like a different life for mm-hmm. me at the time. Um, we were a family of uh, six, four kids and two parents. Okay. Uh, is it okay? I'm, I'm, yeah, no, I'm please, not, um, please, please, please. So uh, uh, my older sister, we the twins, and my younger brother. My dad used to be an editor-in-chief in a publishing house. Oh, really? So he worked really hard, but pay wasn't so so good. He would bring work with him at home. My mom was a housekeeper. She's the one who kept us together. And, mm-hmm. and my dad would bring his work at home. Uh, basically, it's whatever book the writer wrote in his own or her own handwriting. And then the first, once it's typed, we would have to read the actual handwriting of the writer mm-hmm. to him, and he would be going over the print okay. to make sure that there the were corrections. There were no computers. There were no... Uh, Microsoft Word or anything like that at the time. So we would read the book and we would take turn. Each one of us would take a chapter. So after school, um, each one of us would read a certain chapter. And this will be the case until like 9, 10 in the evening. Uh, really? Every day. Um, at times, uh, you know the meaning of my last name, Kassas? What no. Kassas means? No, no, no. Kassas means the storyteller. So your name is the colorful storyteller. Absolutely. Sorry, uh, sorry, were you going to say that? I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, so so, so I think it goes in the blood that uh, my dad liked to tell stories. Mm -hmm. And when he, we're not, we're not working on books and, and it could be any book that publishing houses print. It could be economics, it could be history, it could be art, it could be poetry, which was really the hardest to read. Poetry isn't easy to read. So we all cringed when it was a poetry book. (laughs) Um, what makes poetry harder to read? Um, because uh, although we speak Lebanese, but written um, is Arabic. Okay. And Arabic is a language without vowels. So there are no vowels in Arabic. There are little tiny signs you put over the word. So let's say if I say B-G, how would you say that if it's a word? B-G? Mm-hmm. Say it as a word. B-G. Big, big bag, uh, just bog, bog, B-E-G? B-G. Oh, just B-G. Correct. You can I'll squeeze any vowel in between. It could yeah. be bag, it could be big, it could be bog, it could be anything. Yeah. So when you're reading a textbook in Arabic, if you don't understand the context, you cannot read. Okay. You know, because there are no vowels. So you could read big, it's actually bag. So, and poetry is very hard anyway, so... Um, if you look at really old Arabic books, you'll see little tiny signs over the letters that tell you this is, this is a B-A, not a B-E, not a B-O. Okay. So poetry was a little bit difficult. And, and most Semitic languages are the same way. Um, um, there is the spoken language and there's the written language. Jesus, he was a Hebrew, mm-hmm. so but he didn't speak Hebrew. Hebrew was the written language. Right. What he spoke was Aramaic. Huh. You know, so... Uh, um, and the same thing, most, most Semitic languages, you, you, you write a certain, uh, you written languages in Arabic, but nobody speaks it. Okay. Uh, everybody speaks their own kind of 
Lebanese is a, is a combination of Aramaic, Assyriac, and Phoenician. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you speak it, but you don't write it. Huh. But when you write it, you write it in Arabic. Arabic. Uh, yeah, which is a totally different. And that's why when our boys, when, we, when they were born here in the U.S., it was hard for them to, to learn Lebanese from us because mm-hmm. we, there were no books. There were no thing we could read for them right. in our language. Um, How old are you? If they learn Arabic, they're not going to use it because this is not what we talk at home. Right. Um, yeah. How old are your kids now? They're in college. They're in college? Uh, yeah. And now they have like stuff like Rosetta Stone or Libby or... Um, not they, Libby. Uh, Libby's an app. They, <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they understand it when we talk to them. They, 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 they do speak it. Mm-hmm. Um, now after 20-something years, <laughs> so they're getting better at it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so did you come over just yourself or did your whole family come over to the States? No. So, so can I say this? I had a miserable childhood. Yeah. It's a beautiful childhood, mm-hmm. but it was war. Yeah. And um, little kids in a um, not so privileged family. Um, we went to school in the elementary years. But once it was time for high school, we didn't have the means to, because schools there, they are not public, they mm-hmm. are private. Yeah. So to go to school, your parents have to pay tuition. And um, so my sister went to school, my younger brother, but me and my twin brother, we happened to be at the same age, so there were two kids going to school at the same time. And so uh, our, we never went to actual an actual high school. Okay. So... Um, but we had older classmates from younger schools who went, who continued. So we will take their books and homework and we'll see what they're learning. And then every morning, me and my twin brother, we will divide and conquer. So I would study science. He would study. You're self-taught. Yeah. But this is how it is in that part of the world. No way. Um, so in the afternoon, we switch. So we teach each other's what we learned in the morning. They were great years. And, I, and now you tell me if you... Can you do it again? I don't know how we did it. I it don't was fun. know how you we did it either. I never thought it's... Uh, so, um, and we would borrow everything from that friend who actually was going to school. Okay. And this is how we did it for three years. And how old were like, you at this time? Um, 14. So 14, two 14-year-olds yeah. self-taught themselves math, science, writing. Everything, yeah. All the curriculum, uh, history, geography... What gave uh, you that drive when you were that young to do that rather than just going out and playing? Or? I remember we're talking, what, uh, 45 years ago, there was no TV and social media. And sure, but you can And my dad play, being right? a, a, like, uh, an editor-in-chief in a public publishing house, so mm-hmm. we had lots of encyclopedias and yeah. books. We read a lot. Um, so reading wasn't difficult for us, and we read as part of Re- dad's that, work. Yeah, that. <laughs> so, so reading wasn't so hard, so self-learning wasn't wasn't difficult mm-hmm. um, yeah so so this is what we did and um, um, we would watch TV there was TV but if there was TV there was no power okay so most of our evenings were on candles and uh, and if there was power we would occasionally watch American series okay uh, Starsky and Hatch I don't Starsky. know <laughs> I know Starsky and Hatch um, Chips it yeah. was like a uh, Mash was mash on at mash, that time. Yeah. Yes, mash. But but it wasn't like everything. Like you would, they would put mash one night, and then you never know what what the next episode was. Or 
It was the. Uh, it wasn't in sequence. It wasn't in sequence. Okay. Um, yeah. So America was uh, was like a dream country. It was like what do that people actually live in homes and each one has its own room and mm-hmm. and um, and uh, two cars and or three cars per house and right. and people live in houses, not in apartments. Yeah. And they mow their lawns and. Um, yeah, so that was not something that I uh, that was a dream far far from accomplishing, um, and then um, I don't know if uh, uh, my first exposure to an American was in 1983. Okay, 1983, I was 14 years old, mm-hmm. and um, at the time, prior to that, it was the siege of Beirut. Mm-hmm. The Israeli army uh, in an attempt to uh, move the Palestinians away from northern Israel mm-hmm. attacked Lebanon. And within Lebanon is a very small country. Am I, I'm, I'm digressing a lot. No, no, Lebanon no. Lebanon is a small, very small country. So you, it's, I think, it's like 110 mile north to south and like 30 mile east to west. Okay. So it's like this, it's very small. So within two days, they were. Around Beirut, and that Beirut is, is yeah. <laughs> I was just like it, thinking it, about it in my head. And Beirut is a little bit larger than Wellsville. Yeah, it's hilly like most shore cities, but it's a very small city. You could walk it from one side to another just walking in twenty-five minutes. Jeez. Um, but then, then the Israeli army set a siege around the city, and for three months it was the most scary and traumatic time in our lives because it's a siege mm-hmm. it's like when you read in history the siege of you know um, there's a lot there's no power there's no electricity there's no water there's yeah. no bread there's no food um, we would ration this is what we're gonna eat today and and then the problem with rationing is that when you ration it and there's no power you regret it because the next day the food isn't good it's anymore. Bad, right. It's bad. So you wish you ate it the day before, but then you're forced, you're hungry, you have to eat it. The same thing with water, the same thing with there's there's you know, there's really nothing. There are no means. You cannot shower you right. and one thing you don't read in history books, all the events. If you don't shower, mm-hmm. you're dirty. And if you're dirty and when you sweat and that part of the world it it's very hot, it's very humid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't brush your teeth. You live in dirt. You, um, it's not a pleasant feeling when you know that, okay, I will shower tomorrow, I will shower the day after tomorrow. But you live like that for months and months and months, no brushing your teeth, no, no showers. And on top of that, the shelling. Um, um, you, uh, you know, okay, the air, you hear the airplanes. Yep. Uh, they're gonna start shelling. So we go down to the basement, and then they were old planes at the time. They are, I think, remember they were Skyhawks, okay. American-made Skyhawks. Um, um, you would hear them dive, and you know, okay, they're gonna drop their bombs, and then you know they're gonna drop their bomb, and then you hear something wishing, and then you say, "Wishing, pardon me, not me, not me, not me, not on me," and, right. then, and then you hear the big explosion. It, you're talking about a very small city, right? And then you hear the explosion, you say, thank God it wasn't on me. And then you feel guilty because someone else. else. And then it's a a weird sensation of of, um, 
you know you feel guilty you right. feel happy and then and then something else gonna come after that and um it's very traumatic how long did that the, siege last for uh, three months Jeez. so three for months. three months, three months you were yeah, yeah. and then that. and then you you go during the day in and um you go to like bakeries and if you can find bread and and of course people are stacked up at that bakery and yeah. we were little kids nobody's gonna allow us to take a turn and nobody waits in line that part of the world mm-hmm. so it was hard and yeah and then president reagan said enough already so he sent the marines to beirut yeah so the marines see now i'm becoming emotional no it's fine you c- this is just us talking right now so then the marines came in and um and they separated, they pushed the Israelis back, and and then they finally, we, there was food coming in, there was, um, pardon me, I'm on call. Sure. And, um, um, I normally do this to my phone when I'm on call, I, I do this. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> um, yeah, so the Marines came in to try to create some sort of a uh, civility to that part of the world, and... Um, it didn't work well for them at the end, but um, it was the first time we see Americans. Yeah. Um, we used to all sorts of armies in the world. There's the Syrians, the Palestinians, the Israelis, and we've never seen a military that every soldier wear like this other one. They all are wearing the same clothes. Yeah. They're all wearing the same hat. There is no Marine with a hat and a Marine without a hat. Mm-hmm. They are all wearing the same clothes, all wearing the same shoes. They're all shaven. Yeah. That part of the world, who shaves? Nobody shaves. <laughs> but they're all like shaven. And they lived in tents. I don't know where they lived. But the, every day, any Marine you see, you, you could bet you won't feel nothing on their face. Right. They're all 100% shaven. Bus cut, um, aviator glasses like the one yep. Biden wears right now. Um, what else? Um, so that was yeah, your first? My first exposure to an American. Okay. And then we would just go to the shore just to watch them. Yeah. Um, occasionally, uh, they would look at us, but they were very busy with their things. And mm-hmm. there was one time, um, they, uh, when, they, when they landed in Beirut, they came in in amphibian big tanks. I don't know what kind of tanks they were. They're huge, but there's no turret on them. Right. They just transporting, kind of, they transport them. So they came from under the sea, and, and then and there was a, Marine sitting on top of a tank, and we're little kids. We're standing like this, watching them, and then he did this. Oh, really? <laughs> and we look around, and he's talking to us. Yeah. So we go, and then we got there. And I remember, as soon as we got close to to that amphibian thing, he smiled to us, and I, I could only remember those white teeth, all lined up like right. like someone just put them there, <laughs> you know. And then, and then he smiled to us and he threw something to us. It was a Hershey chocolate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we took it and we ran. When's uh, the last time you had had chocolate at that point? Um, or had you ever? Because we weren't privileged. We would never, you know, go and buy chocolate. Yeah. So, so you would get chocolate if you visit someone and they, they hand you chocolate. Yeah. Um, I think it was a Hershey chocolate because it was brown. Yeah. I never read the name at the time and... Um, who never spoke English. Uh, so we ran away. We were so scared he's going to say, I want it back. Um, 
yeah, and uh, it was a good treat. And that was like the first exposure. Um, um, and then uh, were almost many, like a many years ago, I'm sorry? You're almost like a superhero to you, just showing oh, up like that, I yeah. imagine, right? But the superhero, I don't know if you ever read the um, uh, Wellsville newspaper at the time. Uh, John Anderson asked me what brought you here. I said, someone, I don't know his name. Um, yeah, Beirut is a city that doesn't have traffic li- traffic lights. Right. So, so when you get into intersection, you have to be brave, mm-hmm. and you have to show your authority. I'm gonna pass. Yeah. You have to wait for me. Yeah. Sometimes people sign to each other's, and um, and our house uh, was on an intersection. Okay. So, at the time, the Marines did not drive Humvees; they drove Jeep Wranglers. Yep. And. Um, out of nowhere, our house was in the middle of the city, not on the shore. There was this uh, m- uh, uh, Marines Jeep that was passing by. Mm-hmm. A driver and I assume an officer sitting next to him. Yeah. They looked like gods. Really? Buscot, yeah. Blonde, clean, you know. Oh, and sleeves rolled with like geometric precision. That side equals this side. Right. You know, it's not like their sleeves are rolled, you know. Um, so that jeep got to our, by our house. It's an intersection. It stopped, and now cars were going all around it. Pardon. You're fine. And 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 people were like, "What are they doing?" But the guy stopped. He was looking forward like this. Didn't look right. Didn't look left. Kept looking forward. The officers sitting next to him did not say go. That's what people do here. They just stopped, and um, and um, they waited. Cars were going around them. They waited, they waited, they waited. And we in Lebanese were trying to go. Yeah, and, yeah. But they didn't care. Once there was no more traffic either way, he drove away. Wow. And we were like, wow. <laughs> we want to live there. <laughs> um, and this is really when, when we saw law and order. Mm-hmm. You're a Marine, you're a captain, you're, you're such a privileged person living at at the end of the world, you you do it in the U.S., you yeah. do it there, no matter what, those are the rules. And that was our first exposure to law and order and where every human matters. And, right. um, and this is really when we start thinking more about the U.S. and, and um, went to medical school and... And the rest is history. So your whole family came over, or was again just, it was just you, just you, just me. And um, what age were you when you came over to go to school, and how did you get into school? So being self-taught. Yeah, I think being self-taught, you you study harder. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so uh, we got into so the 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 Harvard of the Middle East is called the American University of Beirut. Okay, it's a. Um, it's a very privileged university. It happens to be in Beirut. It's a beautiful campus. And most of the who's who of the Middle East goes to study there. Really? Uh, so you see princes and, and kings and prime ministers and who are all the graduates of the American University of Beirut. Wow. Um, and, and for us, it was almost impossible to go there. That same friend who was helping us with through high school, he had a teacher who taught him how to prepare those entrance exams. Mm-hmm. So I studied English. He studied, my friend, my uh, twin brother studied studied science. 
and vice versa. We talk yeah. to each other, and we pass the entrance exam. How? We have no idea. I remember uh, my dad crying. Yeah. I've never seen him crying. He was always a tough person at home. And um, and he says, I never could imagine that my kids would go to, we call it AUB, American University of Beirut. Okay. And then you do your pre-med, and it's very competitive because medical school, they only take 60 students. Wow. Um, and uh, it was like a dream. And then it was the first year MCAT was in, the MCAT is the medical college admission test. Okay. Every students who want to apply to medical school has to do that. It was yeah. the first year the MCAT was actually brought by, so you couldn't study for it. Okay. It turned out to be to my advantage <laughs> uh, because nobody was studying and yeah. nobody knew how, what it was, and, um, and I made it. Um, what made you want to go into, into the medical field out of everything you could have done? Yeah, and we don't have doctors or physicians in the family, but it was um, it's a combination um, we liked science, mm -hmm. we liked biology, me and my twin brother, and um, and the war and, and seeing the uh, people hurt and mm -hmm. injured, and um, and it was a gateway to the U.S. Right. If you if you if you are an MD, you can come and study in the U.S. So that was, I think, a um, that was one of the reasons, maybe the big reasons. Uh, Nick, there is nobody in this part of the world any corner of this world, maybe except Western Europe, whose, not, whose dream is not to come and live in the U.S. Really? I think you know that. Yeah. There's no one. Um, if you're a kid in any corner in China or Japan or Africa or South America, you're happy, but your life is not complete mm -hmm. unless you live the American life. That's so interesting. And, um, and we were lucky. Um, I always tell my patients, because... It's a, uh, it's just, and especially now with social media, it's a society of perfection. Yeah. Everybody wants to look the most beautiful, the smartest, the richest, have the best phone. And when I went, when I went to medical school, my rank was 47 among 60. Okay. When I graduated, my rank was 47 among 60. <laughs> I was so consistent. Yeah. And I always tell my patients, it's okay if you're 47 among 60. It's okay if you're not an A plus student. Um, Tell that to Nicole oh. next time you see her, because <laughs> she does not think that way. <laughs> She's like, I need to get a 4.0. She got, she got like a 99.5 on an exam, and she's like, oh, I should have got 100. But that's good. That, fight, <laughs> that fighting spirit is okay. <laughs> Sometimes accepting where we are, and yeah. you know, we're all going to be teachers and doctors and nurses and lawyers and engineers and uh, uh, journalists, photographers, but... But just enjoying what you do yeah. and not, you know, where we're ranked and how good we look and how, um, yeah, so. Um, did you always start, um, did you start with pediatrics or did you, what made you move into pediatrics if you didn't start there? I never thought I was going to be a pediatrician. Okay. But in medical school, um, you study the first two years. Yep. So you're done with your BS, then you go to medical school. The first two years, the first year you study the normal body. Mm -hmm. The second year you study the sick body. And the third and fourth year you actually are in the hospital working with interns and residents yep. and attending physicians. But you go through different rotations. So there is internal medicine, there is surgery, there's obstetrics, there's pediatrics. Mm -hmm. um, when, it was, when I did pediatrics by the time 
this was done, I know this was it. I know I'm going to be a pediatrician. Um, was there a specific, and, uh, like, moment that made you think that? Um, there was a Palestinian kid who had a, um, I can't remember what sort of a cancer, mm -hmm. but he had a growth here on his shoulder, and um, it would grow very fast, and every day he needed that um, grow to be cleaned and debrided, and... Um, so I would go every day, and and, 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 and he was in pain, and, and his mom was was very worried about him. Um, Palestinians in Lebanon, they are refugees, so they're not privileged at all. Mm -hmm. And um, um, it, most of the students did not want to go there to help him because um, the, the dressing didn't wasn't so clean, and it mm -hmm. smelled, and... So I would go every day, and by the way, I have something against smells. I'm, a, I'm a, some, someone who's very sensitive to smells. Yeah. But I don't know how I would go every day, I would undress it, I would clean it, and then it will smell great when I'm done. Mm -hmm. And when I'm done, um, I would feel bad for him because he hurt it for like half an hour. And I'm a kassas, I'm a storyteller. Yeah. So I would sit in, by his bed, by his legs, and I would tell him a story. Um, have you heard the... Uh, Thousand and One Nights. No. So you know, Sinbad, Aladdin, mm -hmm. uh, Ali Baba, yeah. all these, all these stories. So th they belong to a big book called The Thousand and One Night. Okay. The legend is that there was this king. His name was Sharayar, and he was a king who would choose a girl every night, and he would wed to that girl, and next morning after the wedding, mm -hmm. he will kill her. Jesus. And then there was no more girls except the uh, first wazir, the prime minister's daughter. Okay. And her name was Shahrazad. Shahrazad told her dad, don't worry about me, dad. I'll be okay. I mean, what do you mean you'll be okay? He's going to kill you in the morning. She said, I'll be fine. So wedding night, uh, before the king went to bed, Shahrazad told the king, I want to tell you a story. So she would tell him a story, get into a cliffhanger, and the light <laughs> comes up, and it was time for her to die, but the king wanted to hear the rest of the story. Right. So, so she would say, the light is up, Shahrazad needs to go to bed, I will tell you the rest of the story tonight. <laughs> and so forth, it was a thousand and one nights, every night Shahrazad would read the story to, to the king, until the king passed away. Wow. And, Sh and, and Shahrazad survived. And those stories are Aladdin, mm -hmm. Alibaba. And in the movie Aladdin, they put them all together. So Alibaba is, is part of the Aladdin story. It's a yeah. different story. So, so I, I know these stories by heart because dad used to read them to us. Yeah. So I would sit by his bed and I would tell him a story. And so there are so many different stories and, and he would love it. And, and I would walk out of the room feeling good. Right. Um, and um, and then one time I came to round and the child was no more. Okay. He passed away. And his mom came to me and she gave me money. She said, this is for you for making my son happy. And I said, no, we don't take money here. Right. Um, and, I, and I remember I, I hurt her feelings um, because I didn't take the money for her. She wanted to do something to me. And... and um, yeah, I felt like this is me. I want to do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I bore my patients sometimes with stories. I tell them that they may not make sense, but this is how it is, and yeah. that's what I like to do. Well, that's one of the things that, that I was getting a little emotional when you were telling that story. Goodness. <laughs> it's one of the things that drew me to you when we first, because uh, I met you, obviously. You were my doctor um, when I was younger, um, in and out. I remember you used to come in and do like the physicals and everything, and you would always make us laugh and were very nice. Um, and then I had kids, and we're like, who is going to be our pediatrician? I'm like, Dr. Sauce. <laughs> And everybody's like, well, he's really hard to get into because he has a lot of patients. Like, no, it's going to be him. <laughs> and I just uh, figured the easiest thing to do would just be to reach out. I think a lot of people get scared because they hear certain things about something and they're too afraid to actually do it and take the step to just reach out to somebody or reach out to a practice. Yeah. Um, We're lucky in Westville because we, you know, I know there aren't too many doctors and physicians. Yeah. But we are a small community, and we all look for each other's. And it means a lot when one of my patients become a dad and yeah. make me feel like a grandpa. <laughs> um, this is true. It's it, that must be very heartwarming. Just hearing your story now and understanding why one of the reasons that you went into pediatrics um, was to mainly help, and that's one of the things I respect most about you, is that I can tell that you're not just trying to solve something or make going through the rounds as you would from what you learned you actually care about the patients um, and you talk to them and you make them feel at ease uh, with shots and that just means a lot as a parent um, seeing that I don't want to get too gushy right now I don't want to get too gushy right now because I do want to ask um, some more questions why why Allegheny County why Wellsville what brought you here? Where, when you came to, did you continue schooling when you came to the states? Yeah, I came to the state, uh, Syracuse, where I did my training, and then um, uh, my. They asked me to stay an additional year. That's called chief residency. Okay. Um, and during that time, I realized I was gonna become a GI specialist, uh, treat kids with GI problems. Yeah. So I got my fellowship accepted in New York City. Albert Einstein University, and um, until we got a letter from um, the CEO at the hospital here at the time, uh, Mr. De Berardino. Okay. He was the CEO. He sent a letter to my program that says we need a pediatrician badly, um, and we're willing to uh, sponsor a green card uh, for those physicians. Yeah. So. Tell us who you have. So at the time, the program director in Syracuse came to me and said, are you interested? So I called Mr. DiBerardino. Um, he said, you know, you're, you sound very sophisticated. Um, you're not going to like it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I don't know is maybe my accent or he said, maybe you're not going to like it. Yeah. Um, I said, um, we can visit. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, so he gave us directions. At the time, there was no Google yet. Right. And there was no Google map. There was no GPS in cars. Um, so we, uh, I, I wrote down his directions, and we drove. But instead of going to Wellsville, we went to Bath. Uh -huh. uh, we lost. We were lost. And um, we got uh, more directions, and finally we came to Wellsville. And it was the balloon rally. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the, it's the festival they do on Main Street, yep. where Main Street, Street is closed, yeah. and there are kids everywhere. Mm -hmm. There are kids right and left, 
and I and Rihanna and I we look at it and she tells me you're gonna be busy, and that was scary. Yeah, I wasn't expecting a small <laughs> town there so many kids like that. Uh, but now I know that most of the kids they're not from Wellsville, right? From the periphery. So we had a great interview and um, and then um, we were driving back to Syracuse and we got lost. We were in Bath again. Um, <laughs> Do you live in Bath? Did no, you this, just this, this is McDonald's in Bath. Yeah. Every time Rihanna and I, we pass by on 86 and we see that McDonald's, we know this is where we got lost. This is where we sat down and we regrouped <laughs> and we, uh, we figured out how to go back to Syracuse. Yeah. There were trip tickets. I don't know what, you remember what trip tickets are. No. You stop at AAA, you say, I'm going to Wellsville, New York. And they get those little tiny lengthy uh, roadmaps and they actually draw to you where to go. Really? Um, we didn't do a trip ticket at the time. We didn't go to AAA. You pay like a dollar or two, and then they give you that. Okay. Instead of opening a Big Mac. Yeah. Because when when we heard about Wellsville initially, we looked in the map, and you couldn't see Wellsville in the map. <laughs> the printed map, you would not see Wellsville. Yeah. Um, and then um, I was having second thoughts whether to come in or not. And what what year what uh, what time frame was this? 1998. 98. Okay. Yeah. So then. Um, Mrs. Mona Carbone. Oh, yeah. Uh, she drove all the way to Syracuse. And um, it was a, one of those weekends when there was a uh, uh, a tornado in Syracuse. Oh, geez. So there was no power, there's no electricity, roads were closed, and roads, uh, terrible shape. Uh, she called, she said, I'm in Syracuse, can you come and meet with me? So I go to her hotel, uh, we meet at the uh, uh, lobby. And she tells me all these good things about Wellsville. Please give us a chance. Come back for another interview. Mm-hmm. We'd love to have you. Um, I'm not a competitive person. I think during the first interview, they said, well, we're interviewing other people. So when they said that, I, I thought my luck, they would never right. take us. <laughs> so we never really uh, uh, pushed for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we thought, well, good luck for everyone. I take that position. And... And we never pushed for it. So when Mona Carbone came in, she said, you were the best interviewee and, and we loved you and gave us another chance. Yeah. And she told me about Dr. Crandall, the surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, she was also starting there. She says, we're having many young physicians. And um, so we gave them, we came in for another interview. And um, yeah, this is it. The rest is history. The rest is, well, th- so did you start, because you had your own, Go ahead, if you need to answer. You don't mind? No, no, no. I was just looking up Mona Carbone on Facebook because that name is so familiar to me, but I can't put a picture uh, to it. Mona, at the time, she was managing practices. Okay. Uh, And then she managed the ED, and then she became employee health, and I think she retired. Did she just recently retire? Yes. Yeah. Just retired. I think it's the same person. Uh, Mona, um, Mona, Mr. DiBerardino, um, the reason why Rihanna and I were so attached to Jones and we feel like we want to give back a lot to this place is really because what Jones gave us, Rihanna and I, you heard my life, my miserable mm-hmm. life, and I becoming who I am and and that little tiny kid who left, for me, it feels like a different person, you know? And it's all because because what Jones 
offered us. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mona and Mr. D, and later the CEOs that came after that, and Gelpin, uh, Eva Benedict, mm-hmm. and now Jim Hems, we owe them everything. We right. owe them a lot. Um, yeah. Now, did you did you work directly with Jones? Because you had your own practice. You just recently... That's what that picture is right there. You just recently merged yes. back. Did, how did you become to start your own practice? So, um, my first day as a pediatrician in Wellsville, I would go to the office as, an, as a Jones employee, right. and I would say, when a patient come in, call me, I'm at home. Yeah. So I'll be at home, and then, then they would call me, say, there's a patient. And I would go see the patient, and there was... Nobody right. at the time. Dr. Miller was was um, a very busy pediatrician, yeah. and everybody knew Dr. Miller. Um, and he told me, he said, he told me it's gonna be slow, but trust me, you're gonna be busy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it got busier and busier, and it got so busy that um, once uh, my contract with Jones was over, it's supposed to be two years. Yeah. Um, it was two years, and then we were supposed to go back to Albert Einstein and become a specialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we, I loved the works, the uh, working in Wellsville. I loved the patients. And can I go back? Can I regress? Yeah, please. So, so American University of Beirut was founded by mostly two American missionaries. Okay. Uh, uh, Lebanon is a Catholic, uh, uh, is a Catholic um, um, country, mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, mostly uh, uh, the French have a big influence there, mm-hmm. Jesuits and Catholics. And I don't know what happened to a couple New York State <laughs> missionaries. Yeah. They decided <laughs> to go to Beirut okay. and and spread the kind of Anglican Protestant um, thoughts. And they made this very small uh, school in Beirut. And uh, they were doctors. And in 1856, maybe? Mm -hmm. So they would ride on a donkey, and they would climb over the hills and treat people with TB for no return. And they did that for years and years. And then they were able to... Uh, invite students to that college, and this is how the American University of Beirut b- grew and became. Um, but always in my mind, Dad telling me the story of um, Dr. Van Dyke mm-hmm. um, riding on a donkey, going from home to home, uh, treating the sick. Yeah, there were no cars at the time, and and always in a small town like Wellsville, it felt like 19th century medicine. Yeah. You make house calls. You uh, you see your patients. You know who they are. Yeah, they know who you are. You you get invited to birthday parties and wedding parties, and, and you're just a pediatrician. Yeah, and we love that lifestyle. The the nostalgia of medicine is what we doctors here in Wellsville live every day, as opposed to doctors who work in cities. Right. They go to the office at eight in the morning. They come back home at five in the evening. They treat patients. They're happy, but. They never experienced the level of happiness and self-satisfaction that we physicians here live mm-hmm. because we, we feel like we're helping our community and, and 
and the community give us back a lot in return. So that uh, happiness and self-satisfaction and we feel like we're making a difference is unmatched wherever we work. Yeah. And that was what I felt two years after being employed by Jones. But I was working very hard and um, I thought we could do financially better if we are in private practice. Yeah. So uh, Jones Memorial Hospital said, by all means, if you're going to stay, everything that was in the office stayed in the office. Okay. Jones never took any equipment, any exam tables, nothing. The only thing they took was um, medications. Okay. And uh, the tables, the equipment, the uh, everything. They even continued cleaning the office. They continued paying the and phone this bill. this is that the office that, that you're currently in still, right? This is later. Okay. This is later. It used to be where Dr. Crandall is right now. Okay. Um, and then we grew. Um, two exam rooms were not enough anymore. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, like so six or so now? I'm sorry? How many do you have now? How many rooms? I have five, and with Monica also has three. Okay. So we have eight. Right. So we were looking for another building, and at the time, the University of Rochester was uh, renting the uh, place across from Texas Heart where the women's health is right now. Yep. But they didn't need it anymore, so I rented it. So that was supposed to be my office. Okay. But then uh, the hospital, Jones, decided that they want to put their doctors there. So Anne Gilpin showed me this building. And she said, we can make it your office. Right. And I loved it because it's pushed back. It's private. and and uh, You kind of feel like you're heading into some rich area driving down that driveway, that windy yeah, driveway right there. With yeah, that it's massive beautiful. The trees, yard, yeah. which is sad because the trees are sick. They're dying right now. And sometimes they have to uh, um, cut them. And yeah, and this is how it is, and this is how it was. And, and now it's um, connected. Now it's correct, yeah, yeah. you can go. <laughs> I have an electric scooter now, so when they call me to the hospital, I take my electric You scooter. just zip over there? Uh, yeah, <laughs> but not, not with the snowy and icy weather. Yeah. So I take the electric scooter. And well, your vehicle's I, electric too, right? Yeah. It's, it's a Tesla, what model Tesla? Uh, I used to have the Tesla, the S. Um, now it's a Mercedes. You have a, you have an electric Mercedes, all electric. Yeah. Or is it hybrid? Is it fast? I hit the deer with a Tesla, okay. and um, it hit the windshield, and it was Teslas are very expensive to maintain. Yeah. So the insurance company thought it's better to give me a big check than than to fix it. Yeah. So this they totaled it, and that's what happened. They're fun to drive when you're driving a Tesla. Um, you see all the teenagers driving in front of you, behind you, yeah. right, left, taking pictures. Tesla has a, uh, an appeal to it. They're fun to drive, but um, um, they break quickly. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't be saying that. No, no, no it's fine. They're clunky uh, cars. They're very well, clunky. You had it. I mean, you had it. You were kind of like cars. one of the first generation. Like you had one of the first generation yeah. ones, though, right? Yeah. yeah. They probably change. They're better now. Yeah, I, hope so. <laughs> I was listening to uh, my my wife and I were listening to Joe Rogan's uh, podcast with Elon Musk and how they were explaining everything. And they have the new truck out now. And Joe Rogan shot his bow and arrow at the truck and it didn't even penetrate it. It just bounced straight <laughs> off, <laughs> which is wild. But if you ever need someone to drive your electric Mercedes, I know a guy that volunteers. At oh, my goodness. Yeah. Anytime. <laughs> oh, don't say that. I, I, I'm not a big fan of driving. Uh, really? Yeah. Um, I love it. 
I love it. Oh, how did you learn to drive? I think I was um, my last year of medical school, so last I was like 24 years old. Okay. Yeah, I learned to drive. And who taught you? Um, or you self-taught again? My dad. Your dad? My dad, yeah. It was his, he, he passed away that year and he taught me then. And, um, and I, it's, it's hard to drive in a country where there are no traffic lights, where there are right. no rules, there are no road signs and nothing like that. So driving in the U.S. is... It's so such a breeze. So. <laughs> now, when you go to, have you been to Manhattan? Have yes. You, have you driven to Manhattan? Um, many years ago, but I wouldn't drive there. That was about, do you have yeah. flashbacks? Yeah, of I'm growing <laughs> old. My reflexes are slowing down. Yeah. <laughs> do you have uh, Life 360? I do. Yeah. It's a great tool. My wife and I have it. Yes. Uh, especially <laughs> now that the boys are in college. Instead of calling them and saying, where are you? Yeah. We can always see where they are. We feel better. They are at the dorm and... You can see how fast they're driving, too. Yes. So Life360, at the end of the year, <laughs> tells you what how, your driving habits. Yeah. So I was in the top three safest, three uh, percent safest driver drivers who are on Life360. Really? Top three percent safest. Yeah. Uh, Ramsey, my son, wouldn't tell us where his rank was. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I would probably rank in the bottom percentile. <laughs> I... Whenever we go to any any sort of um, urban area, I just tell Nicole, I'm like, just just sit back and close your eyes. It'll be fine. We'll get there. It'll be okay. Because <laughs> I'm the type that'll weave in, and I'll take take control yeah. of the. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> ten more years, and you're gonna find yourself slowing down a little. Bit. Probably. I probably I already have. I, I I like I started going 72 rather than 74 on cruise now, sometimes, on the highway. <laughs> It's different when I have the kids. When I have the kids, I'm very, I'm very safe. Um, but when it's just me, I just want to get yeah, somewhere and yeah, get there. I, um, uh, so you started your own, you started your own practice. And what year, what year did you start in this building, which you're currently in? Two thousand and four. Two thousand four. And did you purchase the fire truck bed? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it was an empty place. So we had to purchase everything. And. Um, um, uh, we were the first to establish an electronic medical record at the time. Really? So, so since 2004, we stopped typing, pa writing papers. The first doctors would need to write. And it was 2004. Yeah, that seems so very late. Town. Yeah, we were the first to have an electronic medical record. Wow. And um, and then Jones got a system, mm -hmm. um, and then it went. Yeah. So. Uh, 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 I like techie things. Yeah. I'm like you. Uh, I can see that. <laughs> electric cars, EMRs. And, yeah. And one of the main reasons why we wanted to join Jones um, in this picture when we joined them. What year was this? This is uh, almost two years, ago, two years ago. Okay. 2022. Was uh, part of the partnership with the University of Rochester. Mm -hmm. uh, Jones was getting a new electronic medical records called epic yeah e-records um and it was such a uh, uh, what's the right word for that uh, blessing blessing yeah and it's a great system where uh, you can see everything all the doctors who use that or the hospital who use that let's say you go to san francisco on vacation mm -hmm. and you go to the emergency room in san francisco that note those labs are actually 
I can see them. They are in your chart here. Really? You know, so so doctors have a better way of sharing information and and making our lives much e- much easier. And patients have the my chart, and yeah. um, so that was a big step towards um, improving healthcare. And um, please take. It. I'm sorry. Of course. Your red stethoscope really pops in that picture. Um, yeah, because <laughs> because I lose it all the time. And um, I looked around at the hospital. Nobody wears a red stethoscope. Yeah. So I got my red stethoscope. So if I lose it, uh, everybody knows it's mine. You're right. Um, <laughs> That's why I have a big orange jacket. And people are like, oh, goodness, you look like a traffic cone. I'm like, but my kids know where I'm at at all times. <laughs> <laughs> and if, I, if it's left somewhere, I know it's going to be there. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, and now hearing your story, I can see how you breeze through. I remember coming in, and this is just my, my personal story. I remember coming in, and it was right in the middle of COVID with Gwen. And I just, I just, I think I just... I was done. I lost it. All my like restraint and pain because it was a doctor's appointment with with um, um, with another physician, and they obviously like wanted to test for COVID. And I'm like, I know she doesn't have COVID. I know her symptoms. We just need a note saying that she can go back to school. And it was just getting so frustrating. How did you deal um, as a physician? How did you deal with 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 COVID when everything shut down? Was it? Um, like, what was your mindset there of like, okay, this is what's happening now. This is what we need to do. We're going to get through this. Yeah. Um, we, we never knew anything about this virus. Right. And um, before it mutated and, and it, was a, it became this mild sickness that it is right now, um, it was a very deadly virus. Right. And, and um We've never been through a shutdown like that, so we all had to adjust and and um, doing telemedicine uh, visits. And we realized Monica and I that we're not gonna do that. Mm-hmm. So we we kept seeing patients at the office. Yeah, uh, we wear a mask and and luckily um, we kept taking care of it. But then the world had to open up, mm-hmm. and um, and um, there were lots of adjustments. Yeah. And um, there was also confusion, if you remember. Oh, I remember. You say, don't wear masks, <laughs> and then wear masks. Yeah. And now we know masks don't really do much difference. And But we had to wear masks. And and um, and then uh, stay at home for 10 days, and then oh, stay home for five days. And then, no, but you have to wear a mask for five days. And So the rules changed a lot. And, and I found it amazing how all the epidemiologists in this country, uh, academics, when a uh, epidemic like this hit us, and everybody was waiting for the bad flu, that Mm -hmm. big flu is gonna hit this year or next year, uh, we got caught with our pants down. Right. And nobody knew what to do. Um, There was no test for the COVID in the beginning. There Mm -hmm. were no commercially available tests. All the tests, the, the, elements to make the test were all in China and China was shut down and right. so we couldn't do anything and we would assume that the hospital could do some tests but it took a while before we could do tests and we were all in the blind it was a catastrophic period I think 
we all I just went yeah. through and and it's a sad part of our history um just know that as how hard it must have been being a physician because looking back because i blew up on um and i've apologized for it no, since but no well, no that, it, I, I i blew up because i had just um my son had just had covid but he did, he was asymptomatic so he didn't have any symptoms and um and during this time you know the schools were just didn't know what to do no one knew what to do um and it was it was hard for us but i can't imagine what it must have been for you because i was cuz there was so much information and i'm like well what is right and then you actually had to walk into the room and i'm like and it was like just like a sigh of relief when you walked in cuz you, like, you 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 were honest and you were like stuff is changing so fast it's so hard to keep up and we're doing our best and it just like instantly calmed me down but um how how was it for you dealing with with and i'm not asking you to be a covid expert just like how was it dealing with everything you're right because things were changing every day right and what we told our patient one day is not what we told them a week later right um and especially going back to school the state was sending new school guidelines sometimes contradicting and right. sometimes finally things stabilized and we know exactly what was required so so it was hard to collect that explanation and right um it was frustrating for patients for parents for us you know it's um Hoping we'll never go through that again. Yeah, if, if anything comes out of COVID, is that now we know better what to do. And, right. And um, yeah, um, but pediatrics is is always um, the art of um, patience. Uh, patience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because you're you 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 want to treat your patients, the young, and you also want to explain a lot to the parents. Right. And, um, yeah. Do you find that um, that it that you're that you are like you just said you're more treating the parents as the kids get older because especially new parents when they're coming in and they're not used to their kids getting sick so like some a kid gets a sniffle and they're like oh my gosh they go on WebMD and they're like my kid's dying I gotta come in and then you're like the, the <laughs> they're like yeah, okay hold it, on it, yeah it, it all starts with you know, your first visit with a patient. Yeah. And, and and it's easier for me right now than it was before when mm-hmm. you want to tell them it's just a virus, just a cold, you don't need medicine. Um, I think over time your patients know how you work and, yeah. and they expect that. But you cannot blame a parent coming to see you when it's a cold because it is, is it really a cold? Right. Is, it, is it pneumonia? Is it something more serious than that? And so... Um, um, and, and I feel like... Monica and I, we have the best patients in the world. Right. Um, and um, um, for us, it's very easy, and, and we really uh, feel very lucky in, in that, that our patients do trust us, mm-hmm. and um, we make mistakes, you know. Um, nobody doesn't make mistakes. Um, but luckily, they're very rare, and um, most of our shortcomings is sometimes I find myself too busy. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I'm a little bit late calling someone back. But those are mostly, uh, we, even when with our shortcomings, I think we have the best patients in the world. You know? Can I tell you a funny story? Tell me. We went off into a, a lighter subject. Um, I remember when we had Gwen. Um, so Gwen was our first. When we had Gwen, you came in and you trimmed her fingernails. 
and you put them in a little scotch tape and you're like, here's her fingernails. And we're just thinking to ourselves like, what the hell are we going to do with these fingernails? And now though, we look back and we're like, oh, her first fingernails. <laughs> so the, the biggest thing, because Nicole and I were kind of the first in our friend group to, we were the first to get married. We were first to have a serious relationship. We were the first to have kids. So whenever my buddies ask me like, what do you, what, what, what advice can you, you know, do you give? This is before they get bombarded with advice and I'm like well listen you're gonna get bombarded with advice don't listen to anybody you're gonna find your own parenting style you're gonna find your own way the only thing I can tell you is don't take anything for granted don't blink because that's what I took for granted and now my daughter's gonna be 10 and I'm freaking out that she's gonna be in double digits because I've been like a dad for 10 years I can't believe she's 10 already I can't either um if you if you ask me if you when you say her name I I think of the four-year-old, yeah, the ten-year-old, yeah. She's she she was she was tiny, um, but I, it was just funny. Like, what are we gonna do with these fingernail trippings? And now they're in her baby book. We look at them. We have the first piece of hair, the first tooth. She was scratching herself. Yeah, she was. She was. We had we had the and then we purchased those little mittens so that we could stop her. From um, I don't. What's your what's your favorite? Without naming any names, what's your favorite story that you have in all your years? Um, it's, it's what really what kids say. Yeah, you know, it's um, you could probably write a book. On what yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we have a we have part of every patient chart that we can write things that they cannot see. Um, like sometimes if we have identical twins, I yep. put to myself notes so-and-so has black eyes and so-and-so have blue eyes. So when I see them the next time, I don't, I, I know who's who. Right. I can call them and, and I look smart, but it's really, I'm not smart. I see <laughs> well, you are uh, smart because you're a note so taker. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes um, uh, kids say stuff um, and, um, and, and I write them in their, no, in their charts in that part. So when they graduate, I'll tell them, you told me this one time. Right. There was a, there was a, a child... Um, who was who was came in for his four year kindergarten visit and um, and now he graduated and I put something there what he told me uh, he had a baby at the time and I asked him about his baby is this your brother he said I don't know but he lives with me <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote that uh, oh no he he lives in my house. Um, he wasn't so happy having a brother, yeah. having a baby. So I wrote that. Those things like this. Um, um, so when he went to college for his college physical, I um, told him the story, and he wouldn't believe that he would say something like that. Um, um, another patient, I say, give me a hug. Yeah. She was two years old. She would say, Ain't happening. <laughs> <laughs> Not today. <laughs> what um, you've you've been you've been in pediatrics since the nineties. What what kind of have you? How has it been living through and and witnessing kind of the the fads? So like the health fads that that come through, come and go through a kid. So there's. My my brother and sister in law are both um, elementary school psychologists. So there's like there's a completely, they have a completely different parenting style than Nicole and I have. Um, 
what's it like just seeing the differences in parenting styles and throughout the years and, and how things have kind of changed since then? It, it, yeah, it's, um, there are no two parents who do, who raise the kids the same way. Right. And, and you often see, you know, kids growing well regardless. And I always tell my patients, if it feels right to you here, then that's the right thing. Right. Um, and, um, uh, the one thing that I always regret, and but you know you cannot expect kids to grow how you grew, right? But I miss uh, books. Yeah, I miss home with books. Um, people not being on their phones. I you should see the grin on my face when I walk into a room and I see a patient holding a book. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to a phone, right? And um, um, uh, you you can trust a book more than more than you can trust anything you read on social media. Mm-hmm. And um, when you read, you read slow. You think. You remember. You. Um, um, uh, Descartes, the French philosopher, mm-hmm. um, said, um, uh, "Je pense donc je suis." I think, therefore, I am. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're thinking. I think everybody's reading mm-hmm. uh, social media, and I just wish people would read again, would have books and and discuss books, and you know. Gwen loves to read, so she's really into manga. That's right why now. I love her. <laughs> Gray opposite. He loves being on the tablet and playing the games. Luckily. We have the educational games right now. We're not going to be able to fight that much longer. But Gwen has a reading chart in her bed every night. And we're like, okay, you have a half hour to read. And then it's lights out. And a lot of times I'll walk up and I'll be like, Gwen. And she'll look at the clock and be like, oh. <laughs> and like throw her book and get down. Um, but she she loves reading. And it's amazing. Um, I'm a watcher, obviously, with what I do. So I'm used to watching things. And I think that's where Gray Gray more comes in, but Nicole also loves to read. And it's harder for her to read now because she's teaching and taking doing school at the same time. But she's into this uh, this book club, like a, uh, a Court of War and Roses or something that she just started in. And she read it the fastest that she's read a book in a long time. And she's like, well, I need to wait for the next one. I'll find one eventually. And I just went to the library and got it for her. <laughs> so now well, that's great. I'm like forcing her to read it because of the second book. Um, so yeah, I guess that trend makes sense that kids are kind of just more in electronics and um, more accepting information and yeah. not, not thinking, uh, critiquing, uh, judging information. Right. And and this is my worry um, is yeah we're not we're moving away from that. And, um, Everybody having their own mindset mm-hmm. and their own ideals. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, I really, I really appreciate you you coming on and talking to me. When you invited me for this, yeah. I said, "Oh my God, I don't have anything to say for a whole hour." You are good. This is my favorite story so far. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right up there with like Rich because I had no idea, and I don't think a lot of the general public. So I really appreciate you sharing sharing your story. You got me to talk. And yeah. <laughs> had enough enough talk for a whole hour, and thank you. What? Um, 
before we leave, I just want to, again, extend my appreciation towards you. I told you before we started, I'm like, there's two doctors that I trust implicitly with anything, and it's you and, and Dr. Lamphere, Heather Lamphere. Um, but just seeing how you act around just our kids and seeing the care that you give is very heartwarming. Um, and it's very trusting. And that's hard to find in a lot of physicians um, that, I, that I've witnessed. I avoid going to the doctor just because I don't want to to do it. Um, so I thank you. And I know I can probably speak for the community in saying that you are beloved here and um, you're not allowed to go anywhere and you're not allowed to retire. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to say to, to the community, to um, anybody? I just want to thank Wellsville, the community, the, the hospital, my colleagues, all of them for, for the great friendship, collegiality, for making, I think we all make our life easier. We all love what we do. And you mentioned Dr. Lamphere, but um, I mostly work with the obstetrics and mm-hmm. Dr. Lamphere, Dr. Rupert, Tammy Chafee, Dr. Kay, um, all the nurses at the hospital. We have a great team of that make life much easier. Yeah. All the family and you know, people who come in from Koning to deliver their babies here. Yeah, and they love it. You say, "Where have you been last?" You know, and um, I want to thank everybody really for their friendship, and this is the making life much easier. Thank you. Do you have any big plans coming up? You know what I didn't ask you that I want. We have to, we have time real quick. That was that was a beautiful ending, but I didn't ask you what's your favorite hobby. Um, what is that on, on, on a day where you're not on call? I read a lot, yep. but my favorite hobby recently has been bird watching. Really? Yeah. Um, Do you I'm, have an accent? I'm learning photography. Okay. I'm learning photography, so just take bird, bird pictures. And uh, mostly bird watching. It's, uh, it's so relaxing. And um, so we have bird feeders at the office. Yep. I don't know if you've been, if you saw it. Uh, bird feeders at home. And. Um, um, my neighbors, the migrants, they have a bird feeder, so I'm always <laughs> looking at it. There's something relaxing about birds. And What's your holy grail bird that you really um, want to see? Um, I like the cardinals. It's so relaxing seeing a cardinal. Yeah. Um, yeah. A cardinal, okay. Um, but what, like, what would be your bucket list bird to see? Not your intuit uh, more. The bald eagle. The bald eagle. Mm-hmm. You haven't seen one yet. You know what? I saw it far away. I took a picture, but as soon as I took the picture, it flew away. Yeah. So I want to see it live and see it close. Yeah. And, you know, Monica told me there's a uh, nest close to their house, so I want to make a trip to yeah. check it out. Um, the Andover Ponds, they have a nest, a couple nests for bald eagles. Um, Alma Pond uh, has, has a couple nests or beaver, beaver Lake, whatever you want to call it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, maybe spring. Yeah. Um, so what, what kind of camera are you shooting on? I have a Sony. Yes. Uh, A7? Yep. A7, yeah. I'm a Sony guy. Oh, you are a Sony yeah, guy? I have the A7 IV, which is my secondary camera to the Blackmagic there. You know, it's an A7. It's like too complicated for me. I, 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 um, so I'm learning. I'm learning. Auto. I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you get a Android phone, you have a hundred times zoom on an Android phone. Yeah, it's... I want something small like this so it fits in my pocket. Oh, yeah, this is pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Whenever I pull it up, they're like, how many cameras do you need? (laughs) Like, yeah, it's the same amount as iPhone. They're just in a a long form, that's all. Um, So bird watching, uh, any big trips or anything planned? 
Uh, we're going, Rayana and I, um, you asked me my passion. Rayana is my passion. Your wife? Uh, my wife. I never thanked her and mentioned her, but we like to travel. Okay. So we're going to Morocco and uh, in March and South Spain, Andalusia and uh, June. You're going, you're going to Later. two of the biggest food hubs. Yes. <laughs> there yeah. it is. Um, what are you most excited about in Morocco? I want to see a snake charmer. A snake charmer. Yeah. Okay. That yeah, would be Morocco's, really cool to see in like. Yeah. And, uh, wow. I only see it in like Indiana Jones. I completely forgot about snake charmers. Honestly, until you just brought it up. Now I want to see one. Uh, what about Spain? What do you want to do in Spain? Spain, it's... Um, so, so Andalusia is the... Uh, is the... Um, when the Moors uh, uh, were in Spain for like 500 years, so they left the big um, uh, uh, touch where the kind of uh, Islamic Renaissance where algebra started, chemistry started. and So you want to see that part of the world that maybe shows the boys part of their heritage, the good heritage, because yeah. when someone mentions our religion right now, it's unfortunately um, not something to be proud of. Right. But we want to show them the thing to be proud of. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. And then, of course, all the food. <laughs> yes, always. <laughs> um, again, thank you so much, Dr. Kassas. And uh, um, we'll be talking soon, probably. Thank, you. thank you so much. <laughs> thank, thank you for having me.